Welcome back to the GovLab's Collective Intelligence Podcast. Today, we're joined by Dr. Ted Smith, Associate Professor of Environmental Medicine at University of Louisville School of Medicine and the former Chief of Civic Innovation for Louisville Metro Government. In 2012, Ted was part of a team that created Air Louisville, a research program that helped the city to better understand where triggers of asthma and COPD occurred using data collected by city residents. Ted, thank you for joining us today. It's great to be here, thanks. Uh, While you were working for the Louisville Metro government, the city, along with a number of partners, created a public health monitoring pilot project called Air Louisville in 2012. Could you tell us uh, more about how that pilot project got started and what problem you were trying to solve? Sure. So when I joined Louisville Metro government as, uh, as the city's first chief innovation officer, you might imagine, you know, sort of trying to figure out what to focus on would be the sort of first priority. And in conversations with a number of our largest employers, I would uh, ultimately hear a common theme, which is, you know, why is, why is it so hard to breathe in, in, in the Ohio River Valley? <laughs> and, you know, there were companies that were having a difficult time relocating people, hiring people into the market because we had a reputation of being a, a really awful place to live if you have asthma or allergies. So that was really the impetus was, this seems like a hard problem. It seems like, you know, we were really working with what I'll call folklore, you know, so we're in the Ohio River Valley, you know, it, it sort of mysteriously traps bad air and, you know, I mean, and you end up sort of having a very imprecise conversation about something that's very important. And so we, we decided, you know, that there might be another way to understand asthma in our community. And so we, we, we started the process of looking for innovative approaches to determining that. And why was it important for the city to understand where the triggers of asthma and COPD were most prevalent? Well, you know, we live in, a, in an era where, you know, it's uh, increasingly important to be attractive as, uh, as communities. You know, people have a lot of choices about where to live and work. And it's even more true today. And so, you know, really it's never been more important to focus on, you know, what we'll call placemaking, right? What, what is it that your local government is doing to really um, make the safest, healthiest place that you, you know, you can flourish in. And so it, it is the purview of the government, you know, to ensure the integrity of the natural and built environment. And so, you know, if we were concerned that there was something going on in the natural and built environment that was creating a negative outcome, you know, it's absolutely the, it's the right, it's the right party to work with, right? Participants in the study used a mobile app as well as inhalers fitted with sensors to collect information about where and when they use their inhalers. Could you tell us more about how that uh, data collection process worked and what data was collected? Yeah, sure. So, you know, as, as I said, we were starting from folklore, right? That, you know, this, there was this reputational issue. You know, people are saying it's just there's bad air here. You know, it really uh, 
makes me sick or, you know, exacerbates, you know, some underlying condition that I have. And so that would be the level of granularity that I think we would understand it. You know, we, we know that the asthma rates are, are higher here than the national average. And so how would we get a more precise picture? Because, you know, the, the going in hypothesis is, you know, either the folklore is the right way to understand it, that there's this a universal even burden across our whole community think of it as like the cloud that hangs over a million people <laughs> or or maybe that's uh, an oversimplification and maybe the burden is not evenly distributed maybe there are places where it's concentrated and if we could if we could have a tool that would help us see that that would be great. And so I had the good fortune from a prior life of bumping into an entrepreneur, uh, David Van Sickle, who had started a company, which is uh, now known as Propeller Health, where he invented this device that you put on a rescue medication. And when you take a puff, it essentially takes a snapshot of what time it is and where you are, right, with GPS coordinates. And so that would give you a very precision instrument to say, well, when are people struggling to breathe, right? When and where, what time of day it is, where are they? And if you had enough data points like that, the moment of exacerbation, you may be able to start you know, answering that question. Is it equally distributed? Is it concentrated? And what factors is it associated with? So that device from Propeller Health was the cornerstone of the project. And that partnership with Propeller was, was really critical to making this whole thing happen. And following the 2012 pilot, the full Air Louisville program was launched in 2015 and eventually engaged more than a thousand participants. Could you tell us more about who participated in, in the program and how you recruited participants? And how did you ensure a diverse audience and that you're engaging the right people? Yeah, so essentially, you know, we went from a small scale pilot study, proof of concept with, you know, call it 300 participants which, you know, was truly a convenient sample at the time. You know, we're just, you know, we, we reached out through all channels that were easy working with our health department. But, you know, when the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation came along and funded the expansion, you know, we, you know, we needed to get that right. And so looking for that extra 1,000, 1,200 participants, we, you know, we, we ran it like a clinical trial, right, where, we had a map and we, you know, we tried all basic public awareness, like, like online advertising, all, all sorts of, you know, like Facebook ads, all, all sorts of things. And then, you know, if, if we were falling behind in some of our underserved communities, you know, we actually got out and worked with community events, you know, where people were gathering and, you know, attempted to enroll them on the spot in those places. And so, you know, it's, it's not unlike any other clinical trial, you know, that where you're really trying sort of everything to get the word out and just a mix of, of online traditional media things and, and some in-person events. And the Air Louisville team analyzed the information that residents collected, along with data about air quality and weather to better understand the environmental factors that could, in, that could trigger inhaler use. What were some of the findings from that analysis and were there any surprising findings? Well, you know, you should probably, you should probably know that when we started this, the conventional wisdom in asthma is that, you know, asthma is exacerbated by indoor air quality issues. You know, so think about like 
dust mites and dander and pet fur, and, you know, and whatever. I mean, stuffed animals that are harboring things. So, so you know, as, as I think as an industry nationally, you know, the, the, the medical community largely, you know, sort of saw this as uh, not really all those other data sources that you mentioned, you know, aren't the ones that I think they were focused on. They were focused on hygiene in the house. And, and it was a contentious at times, just to be clear. I mean, we were, you know, we were suggesting that maybe there were these factors outside that could be statistically demonstrated to be related to these events. And that was a very controversial position to take. And so when we got the results back and the first result that I think is critically important is that there was no correlation between sort of where people live and where they're having their exacerbations. So if you were to follow in a pure sense that these are all happening because of indoor air quality at home, then you would have imagined that these events largely would have been where people live, <laughs> right? And I mean, almost none of the events were where people live, right? So once we had that finding, you're, you're now out in the wild and now it does make sense to look at ambient air quality, to look at seasonality, to look at time of day, to look at temperature, humidity, you know, is it pollen season? I mean, all kinds of things that are outside. And we ended up with, you know, ambient air pollution, some of the criterion pollutants, nitrous oxide, you know, products of combustion and PM, uh, small particulate matter. And, you know, exacerbated seasonally when those things are, you know, generally more available, right? So, so we ended up with air pollution and a little bit of the vegetation stuff. I mean, it is related to pollen. I mean, there's a, there's a whole debate about, you know, why do we study air pollution in one part of our government and study pollen in another part of our government? And, you know, when we're breathing all the same stuff at the same time. And so that actually, believe it or not, is a, is a pioneering frontier in healthcare right now is how, how do we understand the interaction between air pollution and pollen? And, and of course, it only makes common sense that, uh, you know, the, the two together are probably harder on you than either one alone. So, you know, we found those relationships and we found them in places, not generally, but, you know, we could see that there were hot spots of exacerbations. We knew that it was associated with these external factors, which then, you know, would illuminate a pathway to, in these places, knowing that air quality is very important what can we do in these places to improve air quality? And that, that was sort of the big aha moment. That's when you leave, it's a study of academic interest to there's an opportunity to, to make some sort of intervention. Yeah, and those, those interventions, they included things that the metro government could do to improve air quality in at-risk areas, as well as actions that patients themselves could take to better manage their condition. Could you talk about some of those interventions and did they achieve the desired results? And if so, how do you know? Yeah, sure. So let's start with the personal ones because that's a little bit more straightforward. So the Propeller Health platform is really a healthcare product. Right? It is, it is, its intended market isn't public sector officials and public sector programs. Its intended market are, are individuals with asthma or COPD. And the platform itself provides feedback, helping you learn where you might be exposed to some sort of trigger. 
and you know we had some really exotic interesting stories you know there was a woman who was running every day and she would turns out she's allergic to horses and she didn't know that she was running past a stable you know it's, a, it's an urban neighborhood there's no reason to really think that you might be running past the stable but sure enough there was a horse you know center there you know equestrian center and you know she could figure out that the day she went for runs and that she was going past, past this place and then she was having an event so that's a that's a really good example of the closed loop feedback to the individual and and we saw and demonstrated that the vast majority, I think 88% of participants went from uncontrolled asthma to controlled asthma, meaning they didn't need to rely on their rescue products. They could just use their maintenance regular daily product. So that's a big deal in and of itself that we, you know, just having the platform helped people be healthier. Then on the, what the city government could do, sort of the public sector side, you know, we, you know, there were, there were discussions that are still ongoing about, you know, what you do with truck routes, you know, diesel is a, is a real challenge, a health challenge. And, you know, many cities in the United States have special truck routes that can keep that truck traffic away from people, away from schools, away from, you know, dense populations. We don't in Louisville, right? So we've sat down with our regional planning authority and, you know, that was many years ago, but we're still, you know, sort of having that discussion with them about, you know, can we seriously change these routes? So, you know, that's in the sort of to be determined, you know, and then the other, you know, sort of major activity that we uh, moved into is we engaged with the University of Louisville, my current employer, to look at the role vegetation could play in these areas to improve air quality. And, you know, we had a big push on tree canopy improvement generally in the city as a general idea, we should plant more trees. But here was this uh, opportunity to specifically plant, not just trees, but all sorts of vegetation in, in, in a hotspot area, right? Where, you know, we, we have every reason to believe that if, if it could help clean the air or filter the air, it would benefit this population. So there's an ambitious five-year project right now called the Green Heart Louisville Project that is, act, is, is going through that, planting 8,000 trees in a, four neighborhoods. And there's a control group and we'll be able to, you know, be able to say whether we were able to improve air quality and health outcomes in those neighborhoods. And going back to the, the data collection process, were there any pr data privacy concerns around collecting data about people's health? And how were those concerns addressed? It's a really good question. So the, you know, because this had to, had to work as a clinical study, you know, enrollment into the project was really through Propeller Health. You know, so they have this personal health platform and they have a HIPAA secure, you know, framework for storing information about these health events. And so that all of the health data was really encapsulated by Propeller Health. And then the Air Louisville project essentially would create a kind of a sandbox where Propeller could bring de-identified or do the analysis behind the firewall in some cases so that so that that health data wasn't really moving around freely it was always under the control of of propeller and their their hipaa assurances and and all of that so that's that's how we did it and as we've touched on air louisville was a collaboration between the metro government and several other organizations and companies including propeller health as well as 
the Institute for Healthy Air, Water and Soil, among others. How were those other partners involved and why was it important for the city to collaborate with them? So, you know, a community the size of Louisville is, and when I worked for the mayor, he'd have this great line that we're um, big enough to be globally relevant, but small enough to get stuff done. And, and in, there's a lot of truth in that uh, phrase because, you know, it's, it's, you know, you call it 750,000 million people. It's, you know, you're only a few hops away, right? So the, the nonprofit sector interacts with the for-profit sector. They both interact with the local government and the university. And, and, and so it's, it's the exciting thing I think about doing this work here is that we could actually do something in the entire city and really activate those sort of small, small world kinds of relationships. So the Institute for Healthier Water and Soil, you know, was actually the grant recipient from the Robert Johnson Foundation. So it was the sort of prime <laughs> and, you know, it, it was a fiscal sponsorship of our community foundation. And so that, that meant that as this project was growing, we were interacting with lots and lots of other nonprofits. We were interacting with the managed Medicaid providers. I mean, like a whole ecology of public and private and nonprofit partners. So it's hard, it's really hard to imagine doing work like this in any one of those areas, right? Like, I don't think the metro government could have possibly done this work by itself. I, I can't imagine it. <laughs> and I also don't think a company, you know, would have ever been motivated to spend time and resources trying to work on a community issue. I mean, they were, they were doing well just helping individuals be healthier, but you know, it was very bold of them to essentially say, well, gosh, maybe the population health angle, you know, could really enlighten better healthcare, right? And, you know, maybe someday you'll go see your physician with your asthma and they'll ask where you live. <laughs> and, you know, and, and then we were, we were going to have the whole conversation, not parts and pieces and silos. So I think in some ways that partnership was a obvious, you know, kind of reflection of really how we should be working. Could you talk about some of the benefits that Air Louisville brought to the metro government? Did it help to save time or money? Or did it help public servants to think about public health and environmental challenges in new ways? Yeah, I think it's the latter. I think it helped us. Um, it sort of gave us permission to work on things that you know you might not expect your local government to work on. And I'll go back to sort of my early days in that job, you know, like, well, what are you going to innovate today? And what, why do we need a chief innovation officer? Like, and, 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 you know, that's all good criticism for sure. But I think on the other side of all that criticism, you know, is the expectation and the opportunity that you're not just going to be doing incremental things. And, you know, I think I've seen a lot of cities all around the world, you know, sort of uh, embrace the innovation agenda differently. Some of them have done small incremental things. Some of them have tried to do big things that have never been done before. I'd like to think the work that we were doing, you know, was, was a recognition that maybe the job of the city government was sort of bigger than, you know, how people had narrowly thought about it, pick up the trash, arrest the criminals, you know, all the, you know, fill the potholes. I mean, the, the, the sort of expectations of city government you know, over the years have really been pretty limited to a, a very simple services proposition. And I think, you know, I, I'd like to think that projects like this show that local governments are stewards, right, of our, of our place and that we, you know, we're, we're, the, we're the convener, we're a great 
broker, right, to bring projects like this together, because I'm, I'm just really not sure who else could do that, right, you know, and with the, with the purview of, you know, a healthy place is, a, is an economically viable place. Thinking back on your work with Air Louisville, what do you identify as the major successes and challenges you encountered? What would you do differently? And what advice do you have to other people who want to do similar work? Yeah, I think I think looking back on it all, um, you know, I think the successes were that we we made a difference in our understanding of asthma, certainly in the United States. That you know, this is I think is widely regarded as a landmark project. You know, it's written up in Health Affairs, which is the health policy journal, you know, of record. You know, so I know that it got the attention nationally that we it is possible to live you know, in a world that's more than folklore, right? And we have the tools today to work on these things. And so I think that's a, that was a big win and a big success from the project. I think, you know, on the, you know, what do I wish we did? You know, I think, you know, I, I often struggle with the multiple levels of government, right? So, you know, we're, we're big champions of local government. I think local government is great often local government is the least resourced of all the government layers in the stack. And so, you know, I, I regret that we didn't figure out how to engage the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, our state uh, public health agency. I mean, you know, now that we've lived, you know, through, you know, a long pandemic, <laughs> we can see that, you know, these different levels of government they really, they have different resources, different authority. And, you know, at some level, we were sort of working against the natural order of things. You know, the, I think the public expects the EPA to uh, be good stewards of the air. And unfortunately, you know, the EPA is only interested in what's in the Clean Air Act, right? They're not they're compelled by Congress to only be interested in the clean air. And guess what? This stuff isn't in the clean air act, right? And so they, they couldn't really engage because they couldn't engage, but they have a lot of resources and they're in charge of the air. And so I, I look at a frustrated public that just says, well, why can't the government solve these problems? And they're like, well, you know, the government's organized in a very complicated way. And, you know, where the money is to do work like this isn't necessarily where the problem is, you know, on the ground. And, you know, I, I wish we would have handled it differently. I wish we would have figured out how to make it very clear to the public and the country that this, this kind of intersectional work needs to be done differently, right? You can't just expect local governments to, to tackle these problems by themselves. I mean, they just don't have the, the resources, yet they're vested and they'll get the job done because it's their neighbors, right? And can you tell us about your plans for the future? Do you have any plans to build or further expand on this work? And are there any other ongoing or upcoming projects that you'd like to highlight? Yeah, I mean, one of the great tragedies of uh, the project, and I'll put it back on the regrets uh, question, and that is, you know, the, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation had a very smart plan for the work. And that smart plan was while you're enrolling people, go spend some time talking to employers and you know, use these resources, these philanthropic resources to subsidize the, you know, the, the devices out in the world, right? And if you sat down with them and said, look, if this all works out, this technology will help your employees 
be healthier. And it could inform, it could help the, the local government understand, you know, where opportunity areas are, you know, for improving the place. And so their wise advice was the sustainability of this program. So if the first 1200 units were paid for by the Robert Johnson Foundation, who will pay for the next 1200 units or 5,000 units or 10,000 units, right? It's a great question. It's an important question. And so they said, I know who will pay for it. The vested party, you know, who pays the bills when somebody's sick, right? And those employers are paying for those hospital visits for asthma exacerbations. They're paying for the medications, right? So, you know, the, the idea would have been, you know, have the folks who bear risk start to invest in the cost of keeping the program running. And it just didn't work that we never got enough employees in any employee group in the project with the attention of the human resources and benefits people in those employer organizations for them to conclude that A, it's gonna make a difference for my employee. As I said, 88% of folks moving from uncontrolled to controlled asthma just by using this technology, right? You know, so, so we know it could save them money, but they need to see enough of their employees to get that ROI, right? And they never saw enough employees to have a confidence that all of their asthmatic employees would be eligible. And so, so it really did throw a wrench in the whole thing. So that's a long-winded way of saying the program stopped when the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation money ended. And, you know, as, as units ran out of batteries and all that, they all went off the grid. And so, you know, everybody asked the question, you know, how's it going today? What does Air Louisville say? And I have to say, you know, we had a great run. We had a multi-year project. We learned a lot, but unfortunately, you know, it's not an ongoing activity. I will say that the dividends, I mentioned the Green Heart Louisville project. I mean, we have managed to parlay, at least conceptually, the project, right? So to go from, we learned that air quality uh, issues could be hyper-local and that they could be concentrated. We knew that there were some promising things that local communities could do to improve their air quality while we wait for the EPA to solve for the rest of the air quality. Maybe there's some targeted things. And so, you know, that Greenheart Louisville project is an ongoing direct consequence of Air Louisville. And so, you know, we've sort of moved into like the next chapter, if you will, from describe the problem to attempt to remediate the problem. And that's what we're working on right now. And the future, you know, quite honestly is, you know, for, at least for me personally, environmental health is I think really coming into a new age right now. I think we're really, it started with people talking about the social determinants of health, you know, where they said, well, gosh, you know, I, there's only so much health we can make by having you go to the doctor, right? It turns out the vast majority of health that we can make is outside of your clinical encounter. It's in the environment that you live in. And so there's a new sensitivity that, you know, some of these, you know, social factors, you know, whether you have access to food or transportation or stable housing, we know are really important. You know, those are things that cities, you know, uniquely have a strong role in. So if you want to improve the social determinants of health, you have to turn to the city, the community, not you know, a doctor, right, or, or not a clinic. And so really, that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, you know, we, we've learned a lot about a lot of factors, environmental factors that, you know, are, it's really where public health came from, the idea that if I can make a small change to a giant system, I can affect millions of lives, right? And that's the exciting part. Like, I think, you know, instead of treating people one patient at a time privately in your office trying to solve for asthma, <laughs> you know, we're going to solve for asthma 
we're going to solve for heart disease. We're going to solve for Alzheimer's. We're going to solve for diabetes. We're going to solve for these problems, not one patient at a time in a clinical encounter, but by actually taking a good look at the places where people live and uh, making them healthier, a benefit for everybody, right? Well, Dr. Ted Smith, it was great to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. We'll be back soon with another episode. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe. Thank you.